And I mean, like, everyone's trying to tell me their issues, and I'm like, bitch, can you just cue up my drums? Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. I'm Harmony. And I'm Maggie, and we're here to take you on an intersectional feminist approach to books from all over the spectrum. Bestsellers, we've got you covered. That one book from English class you hated while you read it but you can't forget, we've got that too. Comic books, nonfiction, it's all right here. So grab your tea, grab your blanket, and let's get rebellious talking about your new favorite reads. Hello, I am Harmony. I'm Maggie. Welcome back to Rebel Girls Book Club. My name is Maggie. This week we're reading Hunger by Roxanne Gay. Yes, and this is a reread for you, Maggie. So do you want to tell us what, if anything, changed about your read this time? Yes, this is actually the third or fourth time that I've read this book. It's it's one that's really just like stuck with me. And I think honestly, the only thing that's really changed for me upon reread, this is a book where I identify with a lot of the stuff that Gay talks about, about body image issues and things like that. I think that given the things that she outlines in this book, she would fairly not classify me as being a fat woman because I am very much the kind of person who like, as she describes, like maybe like needs to lose 40 or 50 pounds, but it definitely or needs to lose in heavy quotes. But regardless, there's still parts of it that like really resonate deep in my soul. I think that the biggest thing for me is that last year you and I read Difficult Woman by Roxane Gay, which is a book that I had also read before, but reading Hunger after that this time, I actually saw like some of the interesting things about Gay's actual life that like inspired her fiction. And I don't want to say that like any that they're more closely connected than that because she actually talks about in this book how when you write something fictional, people automatically, when you're a woman, look to you and are like, this is autobiographical in some way and stuff like that. And I don't want to make that claim, but there are definitely certain themes that were in Difficult Woman that were like inspired by real life events, which makes sense because write what you know, you know? Yeah, there was definitely, I because we read that so close to Her Body and Other Parties, I kept on having to be like, was this one of their stories? But there was definitely at least one scene where I was like, oh, I've read this before. Yeah, so my first impressions of this book, I guess I'll go ahead and give you all. So this is my first time reading it. This is the second book I've ever read by Gay. The first being Difficult Woman. And I think that I enjoyed it. A lot of it resonated with me. And then a lot of it didn't at the same time like a lot of it felt very different from my life experiences because I'm sure Maggie and I will talk about our own body issues it made me consider more what it is like for different types of people in a way that I don't often get from these books I think because I don't commonly think about people who are so large which is my bad it's not talked about a lot in our public consciousness it very vividly painted that out and what that looks like, and made me a lot more empathetic towards it. And then it also made me think about how fucked beauty standards are, and how every adult woman I've grown up with is so incredibly obsessed with their bodies. And I don't, I guess that's like, not true, necessarily, like my friends and I don't, I think, talk about our bodies in these negative ways. But like, my mother, my grandmother, my stepmother, all who were very thin women growing up were incredibly obsessed with their bodies. And it really feels like this horrible trap that you can never fully get away from. 
Yeah, no, I, I think that that was really poignant. I, I totally agree. Because I, I, I think that you're right. You know, people, part of what this book deals with is also like a cultural criticism of the ways in which our society talks talks about fatness, especially. And Gay has a section where she talks about shows like The Biggest Loser and My 600 Pound Life and all of the supposedly well-meaning people out there who talk about health risks the bigger you get. And how we've made it really hard, I think, to empathize with what it is like to be fat, essentially, in the medical term, as gay puts it out, it's super morbidly obese, which is like, fucked up, even as a medical term. And we've specifically and systematically, uh, like dehumanized people who are fat. And Therefore, the only appropriate way to think about them is like in in a context of pity, if you're going to say anything sort of positive edged at all. Yeah, I guess this is separate from the text, but also I'm sure Maggie will draw us back in eventually. So I'm just going to ramble for a little bit. (laughs) Growing up with mostly thin people and not having been classified as fat for most of my life. Like my knowledge about body culture for the most part in terms of like what it's like to be plus sized or not deemed uh, in the norm came in college from my friends talking to me about some realities of like some of the phobias that they faced. Right. And so it is a different ballpark though. Like what gay is describing this, quote, morbidly obese, right? It's not the same sort of living experience, I think, as many of my friends have have experienced. And so, like, that part was just not even really considered to me, even though I, I still have really large friends who have talked about existing in spaces that aren't meant for them and how that feels. <laughs> that's, all, that's all I'm done now. <laughs> no, no, no. I think, I think you're right. And I mean, I think it's like, somebody who is a fat woman by most societal standards at the very least, like this is also something that I fall into. Like Harmony and I have talked about together the ways in which I don't always fit into societal spaces. And like, well, the experience isn't the same when Gay was talking about uh, like riding in airplanes and stuff. Recently, that's been something that I've been struggling with. I mean, not in the past like year or so, because I haven't gone on a plane in a while. Please don't misconstrue me in that sense. But you know, (laughs) the last couple of times I've been on an airplane, all of a sudden it was like, oh, fuck, like, I really like this space wasn't built for me. I think that the way that she really so like, but even even so even with that personal lived experience, like I didn't, I was also in the wrong because I wasn't before I read this book, I wasn't considering what it would mean to be even larger, you know. And I think that for me, something that I still really struggle with and that gay talks about struggling with is the not to like make a pun here because her other book is called bad feminist but there are ways in which I think about myself that like make me feel like a bad feminist because intellectually I know that everything I think about my or like a lot of the things I think about my body are like wrong and I shouldn't think about myself that way and like I've been societally conditioned to think about myself that way but she talks about the fact that like thinking and knowing and then feeling and experiencing are two different things. And so like, I got so caught up in that and like that realm of like self-loathing 
to acceptance, to self-loathing and like back again, that I never considered what it would be like to be larger than I am, essentially. And I think that Gay sums it up really well when on page 137, to go back to one of the original points you made, Harmony, she says, what does it say about our culture that the desire for weight loss is considered a default feature of womanhood? I think the idea of a default feature of womanhood, like weight loss is considered a default feature of womanhood, is definitely something I can relate to because... As I stated before, I grew up with these very thin women who seemed in some ways like naturally thin. And because of that, I learned at a very young age to hate my body. And I feel weird saying that because even though I'm not like perfect with my body now, I think that I probably have a healthier, like, I I have a less negative relationship to it, not necessarily a healthy one, but a less negative relationship to it than a lot of other women. It's just, I feel like I want to push back even on this idea that it's a default feature of womanhood, though, because I feel like my male partners also have, and, and something I've been considering more as I get older and therefore, like, larger, just naturally, I feel like my male partners also have a lot of this fear of of fatness for themselves and then also for who they date, which isn't something I'd considered before and isn't something Gay talks as much about because obviously, like, her partners are going to love her, but I guess obviously her partners are okay dating a larger woman, right? But, like, the idea that I could become plus-sized, I think, sometimes is fearful for my partner because then he feels like he'll he'll be perceived in a different way. And I've noticed that like, I've had to do a lot of the same sort of self-love that, you know, I tried to entrench Maggie and our other friends (laughs) in college with in terms of like his body and helping him feel good about it. And I think that they does kind of touch upon that idea of like, not this this cultural perception about like who about women in particular having to be thin when she talks about how she doesn't feel like she deserves any like good relationships because she is a large woman and she also talks about like how some of her partners will not take her out and show her off essentially and i feel as though that is coded because she is large and so i guess what i'm trying to unpack in this really convoluted way is this idea of this idea of largeness being gendered for for both for both people, right? And and being like a, a desirable trait. I, I don't know, Maggie. Can you help me out? Am I doing okay? <laughs> you're doing okay. I think I think I get where you're going. I think that it goes. It's not that gay is wrong necessarily, but I think that it might go like farther and like farther than the statement that she made because to a certain extent like bodies and fear of being fat and like diet culture is entrenched in or attempts to be entrenched in every human I think who lives in the U.S. and I think that some of the ways as you're talking about that that can get weirdly toxic is that um it's not just about you as an individual and like your fear of potentially being fat but it also can be reflected in how you perceive and think about your partner and how your partner makes you look, which I think is potentially a 
I don't know. I can't go. I can't go too far that down that path. That gets into stuff that I'm like self conscious about. Yeah, but I think that something that my therapist actually pointed out to me a while ago that's like really stuck with me that I've been thinking about that feels like it ties in here is like we've become a very body conscious people. You know, even if I'm not thinking positive things about my body or negative things about my body, even if it feels like just a blanket neutral statement, I couldn't tell you the last time I went more than like an hour without like thinking about my body in some way. And like that, and like to a certain extent, it's like I live in my body, right? There's some of that where it's like, well, yeah, duh, Maggie, of course you're going to think about the meat suit you wear. But like, we're just societally conditioned to be constantly thinking about the flesh that we're in. And Gay talks about it often as being flesh that she feels trapped in, but also made to feel safe by because of the traumas that happened in her childhood that led her to start eating uh, in larger quantities, which, yeah, I don't know. I attempted to expand on that for you, but I think I just ended up continuing the ramble. No, I understand. Okay, so no, you're you're right. So I think what I wanted to talk about is the fact that it isn't just a default of woman. I mean, it is. It's associated with femininity and womanhood, but in much the same way, feminism is like an issue that affects everyone. This also affects men for themselves, but also like it affects that it affects their definition of womanhood and if they are with someone that they perceive as being less womanly or that society perceives as being less womanly, then that has some sort of shame blown back at them too. And I think that like reading this book, the big thing that kept on coming back to me, I guess, which is something that like, I think I've gotten a lot better at in my own journey to like change the way that I think is that I think that like, we are all fat, phobic not just like as a society but like deeply entrenched in our minds i think that and you can correct me if i'm wrong maggie but i think that people are as mean as gay is saying and just don't say it and i think that like that's something in order to actually love yourself that you really have to like take away back like when you see someone who is large you need to question whether or not you're ju- you're judging them in the same sort of way that you have to decolonize your thoughts i think that you have to like body positive your thoughts for other people because gay even describes it herself being a large woman sizing up every other large person in the room because we're conscious of ourselves we end up being conscious of others and that like feeds into our own self-hate. Yeah, something that I was really struck by in this book was a line where she was talking about the fact that she's been accused of just being somebody full of self-loathing, but also being fat phobic. And talking about the fact that like there was some truth to the first statement, but that she really pushed back against the second statement. And, you know, this is, I've read this book multiple times and I feel like that really sticks with me every time. And honestly, I don't think I have a good response to what you're talking about because there's part of me that agrees with you. There's part of me that I think is with gay. And I think it almost feels so like deeply intense and personal that like the, the way I think about other, when I, like, if I'm in a room and I'm sizing up people, which is something that I'm also guilty of doing, I think probably most people are, 
it's more to assess where I'm at than to assess other people. But there's, of course, implications of how we view other people in that, too. And there's probably there probably is some like deeply ingrained value statement as I like place myself in a room in that way. Um, so I, I, guess, I guess all I have to say is that like I'm st- I'm still like processing that one. <laughs> I guess this is just something I've noticed when I think about like I don't think about my body very much, um, even though I'm at my largest. Like I think part of me being able to accept being at my largest is the fact that I don't think about my body that much. And like my big self-love journey, which started when in like late adolescence, maybe, I don't know. It started somewhere in high school, um, was learning how to not talk mean to myself, right? And that meant not talking mean to others. And maybe this is very heavily influenced by the fact that like mother, grandmother, (laughs) and stepmother, sometimes I think were like negative towards others in the way that I'm sure lots of women have experienced with their various mothers, right? Like, yeah, (laughs) Maggie is nodding for this, I can't see. So I guess like, for me, though, part of this like ability to love myself comes from the fact that like, I no longer size myself up in the way that I did in middle school or when I was much thinner. And it's not something I think about a lot. But I think that I was very appearance focused as a young person, like a middle schooler, um, and and even a younger person. And that's where all of my sort of self-hatred and phobia started. So maybe I'm just projecting out. But I don't know. I don't know either. I think no, but like, I think that it's a really valid. I think it's a really valid point. I, I just like, I think that's still a journey that I'm working through myself, you know, like, I'm, I just don't have a good answer to it. I do think, though, that, like, taking it back to the original point about womanhood and things like that, um, Gay does eventually talk about sort of the ways in which gender plays into this, I think, from a different perspective than you and I were initially talking about. On page 256, she starts talking about how people perceive her as a fat woman in relationship to gender. She says... My fat body empowers people to erase my gender. I am a woman, but they do not see me as a woman. I'm often mistaken for a man. I'm called sir because people look at the bulk of me and ignore my face, my styled hair, my very ample breasts and other curves. It bothers me to have my gender erased, to be unseen in plain sight. I am a woman. I am large, but I am a woman. I deserve to be seen as such. We have such narrow ideas about femininity. When you are very tall and wide and, well, I guess the tattoos don't help, you all too often present as, quote, not woman. Race plays a part in this too. Black women are rarely allowed their femininity. And she goes on in that little chapter to talk more about the ways in which that, like, her personal trauma sort of played into the fact that there were moments where she plays into that in her life because she wanted to be more invisible and being perceived as being more masculine made her feel safer, which this whole journey for her kind of started as a way to feel safer in her body after sexual assault. But that really stood out to me too, because I think that one of the ways in which the conversation can be different when we talk about fatness between how society talks about it between men and women is that 
to a certain extent, fatness can be really coded to like to women. But I think when you reach a certain level of obesity, suddenly it switches and then everything is masculine because you're just viewed as being large and men are thought about as being large. And gay is also six foot three, which is also, you know, a very masculinely coded uh, height. So I'm, you know, she talks about the fact that like for her, that plays into all of this. But there is, I think, a way in which you know, talking about being, as she puts it, you know, multiple times, that medical term, super morbidly obese, suddenly some of this coding switches. And whereas, you know, at my at my weight, uh, at like a size 16 or whatever, the conversations are often about women and like, are you still attractive? Like, how, how does society perceive you? And things like that. Suddenly, when you, the bigger you get, the more your womanness is erased instead of being hyper-focused on and suddenly you're like more masculine for being large. I don't know if any of that made sense. I'm sorry. I think, I think at the end I I had a point, but. No, I understand. I think that, I mean, all I have to say is that I think it's right. Right. Like that's the big fear. That's why it's a default of femininity because we're supposed to be small. We're not supposed to take up space. Um, which I actually have a passage here if we want to get into that later <laughs> that I don't want to lose. About space, we're supposed to be tiny and manageable, and that's why it's inherently unfeminine, therefore, to take up lots of space, mm-hmm. which Gay talks about. And I don't know, I kind of want to unpack that too, because I think part of the reason why. I'm happier in my life right now than I was when I was, like, very thin, (laughs) is this idea that, like, I'm okay, I'm more okay, I'm not completely okay, but I'm much more okay taking up space and, like, asking for things and have learned to feel more comfortable with that. And, And that's, you know, privileged in a lot of ways, but, like, why... Why are we as a society, when, like, the word feminist isn't a bad word anymore, why are we so afraid as women to to take up space? Like, is that what we think that this largeness really all comes back to? Is this idea that, like, then we will be less manageable for men? Then a man can't, like, pick us up and fireman carry us? I mean, I'm sure that that <laughs> plays into it. I think that beauty standards have been so deeply ingrained in who humans are for so long that it probably goes farther than that but I'm I'm struggling to put it any more succinctly too so like touche <laughs> there's a quote on page 13 where Gay is talking about trying to build this fortress which is a theme she comes back to over and over again about like feeling more secure with weight on because then she's less breakable and she says This is what most girls are taught, that we should be slender and small. We should not take up space. We should be seen and not heard. And if we are seen, we should be pleasing to men, acceptable to society. And most women know this, that we are supposed to disappear. But it's something that needs to be said loudly over and over again so that we can resist surrendering to what is expected of us. While... I know that you're talking about your own body experiences. Like, while while you may be perceived differently 
for being plus sized or for being a size 16, right? Like your body still isn't unruly in the way that gaze is, which is a word that she uses to describe her body. And that, that was something that just kept on coming back to me. Like people hate it so much because they can't, they don't know what to do with it. It's too much for them to like conceive of. It's different and it's not built for our spaces. And it does, it takes up too much space. She has the audacity to be a large black woman and large, not just in like physical, uh, like not in width, just in width, but in, in size and in height too. Yeah, I hear you. I think that, yeah, I think that that totally is like the thing that separates my personal experience. I mean, there's multiple things here, but like what comes back to me is, is that right? Like I am still acceptably fat essentially and like Mm -hmm. because just because I struggle with that on a personal level sometimes doesn't mean that it's untrue societally like I'm still within a level at which like no one looks twice at me you know like she's talking about the few stores she can uh shop in and stuff and you know there's ways in which I identify with the problem of like having less clothing options and things like that but I still have way more my body to put it in terms of she's put it is not public record yet my body is not something that everyone feels like they can and should and like are entitled to have an opinion on and I think too with the invisibility thing it's interesting because the larger you get the more invisible you come so I think that there is a certain uh, sense of like something that's like messed up in our heads is like we hate this idea so much it's so deeply ingrained in us that uh, if we encounter it, the people who are are fat essentially become less and less visible to us because we just want to like ignore this reality that somebody could be this way. Because as she talks about in her relationships with her family, ultimately people think that her body is a problem, you know, and that's what she's fighting up against. I mean, she even talks about the fact that she felt like she couldn't enjoy cooking because that's how much of a problem she's been made to feel like her body is. When in reality, you know, the feminist perspective that we're all like butting up against here, that she butts up against here intellectually is the fact that it's like, it's her body, it's her choice what to do with it. Uh, And intellectually, she knows that like, her size is her size, essentially, and that, as she puts it, being thinner, isn't gonna unpack her 30 years worth of trauma or things like that it's not going to make her happier but we've been so so sold on this dream that it's still hard not to wish for it yeah i don't know so can we talk a little bit about this like not i know this this is getting away from the text but i feel like i just can't not get away from the text in this episode but like is that your experience like when you were thinner do you feel like you were happy I would say at times yes and at times no because ultimately like the the thinness or not thinness was not what was making was like not what was causing that happiness I will say though that like I think like many people who struggle with their weight and body appearance there was never a time in my life where I felt thin you know not even when I was like a teenager and weighed like objectively a small amount you know um I always felt fat. I always was butting up against my body. And it was largely because I was bullied in school for it. Because I was, I I hit puberty earlier than all of the other girls. And I had tits in like fourth grade. 
And at that age, it was associated with like being larger. And then to a certain extent, it became a self-fulfilling prophecy for a little while that that part, I feel like I've broken away from. But so I think that that's like tricky to answer because the answer is yes and no. The times that I was happy had nothing to do with my weight, but also it's hard to answer because there was never a point in my life where I felt thin, you know? So. I don't, I I agree with that. Like, even though we have different bodies, right. But like, like I, I, I agree with that a lot, but I also think that like the, the one time I felt thin was when I had an accidental eating disorder, which sounds like really glib. And I think sometimes offends people, but like, that's, that it was an eating disorder, but it also like was not entirely intentional. Um, So like, I don't know, it wasn't necessarily about my body. It was just like, I have ADHD and don't know how to feed myself. And then uh, there were other things, there were other like control aspects to that, but that was like the main drive for that thing. And I just remember feeling so miserable during that one time. Like that was the one time where I did feel thin because I stepped on a scale and was like, oh shit, I am thin. I should maybe like look at what I'm eating. And I think that for me, it made me feel... It made me feel sad because I recognized that I was too thin, but also, like, I didn't feel like, at that point, before I had told anybody about it, because then I started talking about it because I wanted people to, like, monitor me a little, um, no one had noticed, and that made me feel worse. So, like, I was thin, but I, I wasn't at the same time, right? Because my body is never going to look emaciated because that's just not the way I'm built. And, like, that then made me feel more insecure. So, like, I was thin, but I wasn't. And, like, I felt sad because then I didn't feel like I could fully rejoice in this thinness and this magical number that every time I had tried to diet and exercise, I was working towards but would never achieve, you know? And here I was. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah, I don't know. But what struck me about that, too, and what strikes me about the book and this idea of Gay's fortress, which eventually becomes her prison, is this idea of safety. And at that time, I think that, like, for me, I felt much more vulnerable in this in this body that I now recognized was thin and was too thin than I have ever felt in my life. And now, like, as someone who wears size larges and sometimes extra larges, I don't feel that way anymore like I feel much more like I feel strong I don't always like like the way I look but like I don't feel like things are going to hurt me as much but in that time I felt like this open wound and like very very vulnerable to anything that could be thrown at me yeah yeah you said a couple things there that I (laughs) want to dive into um that were all really good points the first is like about the accidental eating disorder thing and I think that gay like touches on this too a little bit in the Mm -hmm. book she has this very like this two-page chapter that's very powerful where she talks about the fact that she looks at anorexic girls and like there's part of her that wishes that she could be that because they like have the willpower or, or you know some messed up thing that our minds tell us is is the truth even though objectively we know it isn't but I do think that sometimes things like that come from the fact that even when it comes to disordered eating we have a very stereotypical 
view of not just what it looks like on a body type, right? Or like what we should be looking for with warning signs, but also a very stereotypical view of like what causes disordered eating um, and what the motivations of disordered eating are, because it's perfectly valid that like your thought wasn't necessarily, oh, I need to lose weight and I'm going to lose weight and this is how it's going to happen. But that it was, you know, caused by tons of various really high stress things that were happening in your life and like a need for control in some way, even if it wasn't purposely being like, this is the only thing I can control, you know? So that really strikes me. And she does, and she talks about it a little bit in, in the book too. I think the other thing too, that's interesting is like, Gay also talks about the fact of like, looks are one thing, but how you feel is another. So like in her fortress to prison analogy, the the eating and, and the fatness for her was safety for a long time. And now for her, there's like this real tension in the book between just wanting to look different and be more societally accepted and like fit into spaces and how she's, my sense was especially by the end, like how that was stuff she was starting to move away from. But there was also a lot of feeling here. And it's not feeling, I think, in the way that we often think, or like, at least I personally often talk about you know, I want to feel better. But like, she talks about the fact that like, she was genuinely really scared when she broke her ankle or how she has an undiagnosed stomach problem that's been undiagnosed for 10 years and how the idea of her body as a prison and just wanting to feel free is like really, really deeply ingrained for her. So I think that like body as feel and like wanting to feel good in your body is it's like a different kind of struggle almost. And there's one part of me that's like, you know, I think the feminist line often is it's not about how you look. It's about how you feel. But like, at what point is that also a trap too? Um, and that's not to like knock your journey by any means. I'm sorry if it comes off that way, but it's just like things that I am like, it's just like things that are coming to me now is like, at what point is this also <laughs> this like same trap? Well, or maybe a similar trap. I think that th- these are different experiences, right? Because like, well, yeah, I'm not, I'm not gay size. Uh, you're not gay size. Gay no. has a different experience than either of us to the point where like, it it is physically a trap for her because she can't go to restaurants and have like a good time without having to deal with the chair legs, mm-hmm. uh, the chair arms, which she talks about. She talks about the chair arms, like being very physically painful for her. Like there are things that she cannot do as easily. She cannot move through the world as easily than either of us can because of her size. So I think that like what I was trying to draw, I think with the feel though, is for a long time until she kind of reaches adulthood later in the book, she still is clinging. Like even in her, even when she like gets to college, it sounds like even when she's in high school, she really needs this. She needs this, this weight in order to feel safe. Mm-hmm. And so like, Obviously, I feel it's different. My feeling good being larger is is different. But also, like, I think I was trying to I think I was trying to to describe the fact that, like, we think that thin women are going to have it all. But also, like, I don't I don't think that's the, the case. But this idea, I guess I resonated with that idea a little bit of safety. Um, and for me, it's different because I have a much more 
empowered relationship, I think, to my body than gay does. And this whole memoir is about her her relationship with her body and how it has something bad happened to it. And then she punished herself. And then she's like, keeps punishing herself. But she's also struggling to like regain control of her life. So obviously, I have a different relationship. I guess it's just like this idea of like size and space. And then this feeling of vulnerability and vulnerability in terms of size. She, cause she does feel vulnerable in, in her, in her largeness as well. And she describes that more later towards the book, like getting up on stage and in, in front of a group full of people and like not being able to get up on stage and how that is a vulnerable experience. I guess I just like, I very, an emotional level felt that, that idea of like our size helping us with that vulnerability. I identified a lot with the smallness, the the idea of like not wanting to be small, maybe, because it yeah. makes you more vulnerable. And I guess I just wanted to like share it and also wonder what your experiences were with that. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I <laughs> Sorry, I started just like waxing philosophical there. I wasn't really thinking about the book. I was just having an epiphany about the ways in which we, everything yeah. we do has to be somehow conditioned by our body. And it's like, either we justify it by how it looks or how it feels, but we said we always have to justify for whatever reason how we look. It's just like yeah. how you frame it or like how you feel about how you look. Or just how you feel about this meat suit that you're dragging around. It is a meat suit. But it's my meat suit. And I have to remind myself of that because my PTSD makes me dissociate and thinks that the meat suit isn't my meat suit. So that's a different that's a different set of issues. But it but it ends up relating. It ends up relating. <laughs> I yeah, I don't know. I think that I've never felt I think I'm still on a journey to feel good enough with my body where something makes me feel safer or lesser or more vulnerable to a certain extent, which is a sad thing to admit, but is also the truth that I'm, you know, here to tell you all the truth. So I think that that's my personal take on it. My body and my relationship with my body personally is, um, I think in many ways, my biggest struggle still on my feminist journey to a certain extent. And like, that's not a bad thing or a shameful thing. You can have an ideology and still have to butt up against it in many ways. But like, for me, this is the place where it butts up against it. So I can empathize with what you're saying. And I especially empathize with Gay in the book. She she puts it really poignantly about feelings of safety and vulnerability and how at the end of the day, changing her body in any way wasn't the answer to healing in any of that. And I think that's something I really love about this book is that it feels very raw. It feels vulnerable. It feels truthful. It's all of that. But it does also end on a hopeful note where she talks about healing and healing ultimately doesn't end up having to do with her body at all to a certain extent. She says on page 283, I always wonder what healing really looks like in body and spirit. I'm attracted to the idea that the mind, the soul can heal as neatly as bones, that if they are properly set for a given period of time, they will regain their original strength. Healing isn't that simple. It never is. And then she talks about the fact that at the end she, on page 299, it ends with, I wasn't am thankful for that moment. I am thankful that my body, however unruly it is, allowed me to learn from that moment. So she has this moment where healing comes in conjunction with her body, however it was at the time. And that it's not just mind versus body or spirit versus body, but that healing comes 
sometimes is at a moment of togetherness and acceptance and just saying like, all right, this is where we're at and this is where it is. And like, this is what we're dealing with. And that I think as a sentiment felt really hopeful to me. And yeah, I think that that's a yeah. uh, passage that you just read ties us back into the topic of trauma, which we haven't really delved too much in, but this book is about, I mean, it's about Gay's body, but it's also about her body's relationship to trauma. And I think that we can read this. Maggie and I have talked about this on, on recent episodes, this idea of struggle and how struggle that shouldn't always happen, but also how sometimes it makes us stronger and how that idea is problematic. But what I see here and and these hopeful messages is Gay accepting that these things are a part of her. And that also means accepting her body and then wanting to change things, right? To be more healthier, not necessarily just with her body, but just with this, because trauma and her body are so wrapped up together, they're, they're kind of one and the same. She wants to be more healthier because she wants to be there and be around for the people that love her and how that's her first step in healing and her first step in moving forward, right? And I think that when we talk about trauma and maybe Maggie will, you know, it seems like you've been actively a little bit more than I have at the moment, been dealing with some of this stuff and and, um, been actively dealing with your trauma and with healing. I think that that is, that that is how we heal, right? We have to accept and then like, look at how we move forward. I think my answer is been to just kind of forget a little bit and then keep going. But I think that real healing comes when we accept that this is a part of ourselves, move forward, but also recognize that this is a part of ourselves and and that we don't hate ourselves because of it, right? Yeah, I've been struggling to deal with how to talk about the trauma in this book, because as Harmony mentioned, you know, something that we've been talking about recently a lot on the podcast is this idea that, you know, being strong in the face of trauma or whatever is problematic or, you know, the various ways in which that sentiment can be spun out. And Gay talks about that a lot in the book. She says, you know, I don't want you to call me a hero. I don't want you to call me strong. I don't want your pity. I don't want your compassion. So I guess I'm struggling personally as somebody who had messages that really resonate in this book, how to talk about that without going into all of these things. But I guess this is my thank you to Gay for at least saying something that felt truthful to me, even though I couldn't relate to all of it. Because at the end, your message of healing resonated with me in a way that made me feel seen without all of that other bullshit too. I don't want to, and I'm having trouble articulating anything further than that, I think, without getting into that whole, you know, you know, you're just like, thank you for sharing your story. Like, you're so strong, which like, I don't, I don't agree with as a sentiment and I think is really problematic, but also is the script that we've been taught to deal with these moments. Yeah. So I guess then relating it back to bodies, and keeping in mind that for day throughout the book, they do, they are one of the same, the trauma and the body. If we're looking at her hopeful message of changing, taken away from societal context and changing not for anyone else, but for herself, simply because she recognizes that she deserves to, to, to be, to take good care of herself, right? She deserves good things. She deserves to be able to do all these things that she wants to do. And that doesn't necessarily mean looking thin, taking it outside of the the looking aspect, right? How do we want to read that then? This idea of 
I don't know. For me, when I'm when I'm really messy, it's because I'm dealing with a tra- traumatic relapse, right? That when my life gets under out of control, it's kind of associated to my trauma response. And cleaning up my life is something mm. that I do ultimately for me because I want to have nice things. <laughs> and, you know, I'm not always capable or able to do that. But the first step to healing and to being able to clean up is recognizing that I hunger, to use gay's terminology, for these things. I hunger for stability. So this is how I try to create it. And I think that's the message we're left with at the end. She hungers for these nice things. She wants to do these things because she's loved, right? But also that means that she is worthy and she should love herself. She realizes I want to love myself. Yeah. Yeah. I think that with a memoir like this, books are like a trap sometimes because they have a neat beginning, middle and end, no matter how you slice it and dice it. So this book is structured to make it seem like hope is the it's ending, <laughs> where in reality, I'm sure that in yeah, yeah, yeah you know, like it's a, it's a journey and hope probably happened somewhere in the middle and is still kind of being cycled through yeah. all of this other all of these other feelings that she describes, right? So I as a reader really appreciate that message. But I think that in practical application as humans, it's okay to remember that yeah. it's okay to not feel that way all the time. You know, it's okay that this is a cycle. And I'm pretty certain that Gay would agree with that, you know. But I do think that the closest thing I've found to healing too is just accepting the fact that I deserve what I deserve outside of any other circumstances, partially just because I'm a human, you know. I deserve to have Ina Garden as my fairy godmother (laughs) watching over me as the barefoot Contessa. Harmony doesn't watch enough Food Network. Y'all. I actually she, 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 didn't, she, didn't, she didn't get her right off the bat. first. I really do. It makes me hungry, and then I get mad because why would I want to watch? It's like watching people play video games. I want to participate. Yeah, fair enough. I I, I don't know. It's, I, I just like watching people cook. But <laughs> sorry, sorry, I I got off track there. I anyways, I guess no, no, no. It's fine. I guess what I'm saying is. That context, I think, is important that hope isn't the end of, of any journey or starting to heal isn't the end of any journey. To a certain extent, starting to heal means that you're on a whole new uncharted journey where other things are going to come up. So like to me, the end of this book is is probably just the opening chapter of a new one. Yeah. And I think, too, with that disclaimer, the idea of a cycle really resonated with me because I feel like when we quote unquote start to heal... We don't always realize it. And your point about this being a book, right? Gay is very neatly placing it out to us for us. She's being like, this is the moment. But that's rarely how life works. And I think throughout this book, even, we see some of Gay's healing. We see her start to develop friends. Mm -hmm. We see her reject some of what some of the the pressures that her family has placed on her and we see her separate herself from her family because she needs to not that her family is bad she's always very careful to let us know how much she loves them but she needs to go on some sort of separation she needs to have some sort of alone time and the fact that she goes on her own and kind of wrecks her life so to speak is how she does that so i think that that's a really good point healing Healing is cyclical and there's never, you're never going to necessarily feel like you've made it, 
all you can do is just keep building up and and keep trying to build up. And sometimes you're going to regress. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think too, something is really important about the fact that, or at least something really strikes me is the fact that Gay wrote this in her 40s, because she talks about the fact like that her 20s people. were just like dead ass <laughs> the worst decade of her life, right? Yeah, like most people. But but the cultural myth is that your 20s is the highlight of your life. And I think too, as you know, different generations, in some ways, the reasons that our 20s are the worst time of our life and potentially, you know, and the reasons that gays are the worst time of her life are, are probably vastly quite different with some with some uh, recurring themes between the two. But, you know, even so in her 20s, we see the realization she has, right? It's in her late 20s where she starts to realize that, you know, no, I do deserve to have good and healthy relationships. And that also switches back and forth with her because it starts off being avoiding men entirely, never not wanting to have any kind of relationship with men, and then only having sort of negative relationships with women. And then in in her late 20s, that almost switches a little bit. And she has like this really positive relationship with a man in her late 20s and early 30s. And then, you know, things kind of interweave. Even then we start to see building. And then in her 30s, as she's breaking down that part of her life, we see more in different kinds of healing and building. And then at the end of the book in her 40s, presumably where we get this revelation, but I think actually what the revelation the end is is just putting words to the things that you see building the entire time you know to like make a nice neat ending because again it's a book and I bet that's what her publisher wanted but we see that message of this is what healing actually looks like come in bits and pieces throughout the whole journey and I think that that's what it's actually about you know and she also talks about the fact that much like her relationship with her body there is no end goal right there is no one perfect, true, healed version of Roxanne Gay. There isn't that other Roxanne that she daydreamed, that she used to daydream about who didn't have this childhood trauma happen to her. There's just her and feeling better and happier and, and more whole. And that's, that's it. And I think that to a certain extent, that's what we can all hope for is just getting to points where we feel better and happier and more whole as people. And that's, that's what healing is at the end of the day. There is yeah. no healed. There is just trying to make more healing. of the good and the happy as much as you can. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I don't think I have anything to add to that. <laughs> no, I think that was probably a very nice moment to end the podcast on. Do you think this is a feminist book? Yes, absolutely. Same. 100%. Nothing to add to that. I, the answer is just yes. We have, we talked off air. You guys didn't get to hear this about the idea that we might be changing up our homework format to instead talk about something we did that we feel like made the world a better place, big or small, just to kind of hold ourselves more accountable. And also because homework, sometimes it gets too vague. So Maggie, is there anything you feel like you did this week, Mm -hmm. um, big or small, that you feel like contributed to a better place? I mean, yes, but the only example that comes to mind is something that I can't share. So give me one second to think about something else I did. (laughs) That's fair. That's fair. I don't have a thing either. So let me. (laughs) Oh, you know what I did this week that makes the world a better place is I was able to support somebody who really needed a meal and a place to sleep earlier this week by helping them get set up in a shelter that they were having trouble connecting to. That happened technically in this week. It was it was earlier in the week, but it was this week. (laughs) 
That's beautiful, Maggie. Mine is much smaller, but I had been disappeared from my friends for a little bit. And I have this one friend who is not Maggie, who I have another codependent relationship with, who for whatever reason feels vulnerable, feels like they can be vulnerable with me. And I'm one of the few people they feel like they can be vulnerable with. So I was able to reach back out to that friend and create some long lasting dates and be more present in their life again after I had gone on hiatus for a few weeks because of finals and I feel like that helps so that does help that's wonderful what are we reading what are you reading what am I reading I just finished when he was Wiccan oh I read a lot of picture books so I will just because I'm taking a children's literature class so that's why I will just give you guys a couple of my favorites one is Radiant Child by Jean Michael Basque Kate Basket. Oh, I don't think I'm that's sorry, the author. Basket. That's because that's the that's the artist that the, that's the <laughs> that the book's based on. All right, let me try it again. Radiant Child by Jabaka Steptoe. <laughs> I I it's that's how it's spelled. So I'm sorry, Jabaka, uh, if I said your name wrong. Another is called Me and Mama, and it's by all of these names are. I'm going to mispronounce them, and I'm really sorry, you guys. Kozibi. A Cabrera. And the third one is called something about a lighthouse, but I'm not going to name it because I don't have the book with me and I can't risk. I can't risk. But it's a Caldecott winner, winner. And I think it was the 2019 winner, actually. And it has something to do with a lighthouse. So y'all can look it up. What about you, Maggie? <laughs> I am reading The Black Flamingo by Dean Ada, And I'm also reading something Harmony is going to be excited about because I got it on her recommendation. But it's called Viper Wine. What? Well, is that what it's called? Mm-hmm. Viper Wine? Mm-hmm. I thought it was called The Vine Witch. Did I get the wrong book? That's hilarious. I think so. I think you got the wrong book. Ha ha. Ha ha. Well, regardless, Viper Wine's pretty good too. So like, I'm not mad about it, but you know how it goes. Um, all right. What are we reading next week, Maggie? Oh, next week we are having a guest episode. We talked to our friends from the Mistress of the House of Books, Molly and Yasmin. So check it out. They're a book review website. I write for them sometimes and it's a good time all around. It is. It's a lovely conversation. All right. I think that's all, folks. Is that all? That's all, folks. Goodbye. Bye. Don't forget to rate and review us on your favorite podcatcher app. You can support this podcast by going to anchor.fm slash RGBC and clicking the support to this podcast button. Our episode schedule can be found in our show notes or by going to medium.com slash rebel-girls-book-club and clicking read along. You can follow us at RGBC pod on Instagram at Rebel Girls Book Club, on Facebook at Rebel Girls Book One, on Twitter, and you can email us at rebelgirlsbookclub at gmail.com. Our theme song is called Pretty Boys Make Me Feel Ugly, and it's by The Gays. See you soon, and remember to read rebelliously. Rebel Girls Book Club is a part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts.